Hello, this is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. We are talking about the Greeks. I apologize that we had about a week break. I was on vacation, but I am ready to move us in to talking about two later topics in the history of the Greek people, and that is talking about life in archaic Greece and the Persian Wars. Once we finish these two topics, we'll be ready and set up to go into formally classical and Hellenistic Greece and talking about the Greek Empire and basically the height of Greek culture, economy, and political power. So we're almost there. I want to have a few notes about what was it like to live in Greece for most people versus the aristocratic class. And then talk about one of the major events, the major event, that sets Greece up to achieve their greatest potential in economy and politics. Again, that's called the classical period for Greece. So, let's get started. First topic today, life in archaic Greece. The Dark Ages ended uh, due to over, uh, in, came to an end with the spread of Greeks through colonization and fixing the natural environmental uh, food pressures on the Greek populations that was caused by overpopulation. There were divisions in culture between the aristocratic class and the poor average country farmers and people who had a small portion of land that wasn't, as, wasn't nearly as good and didn't have as much. Most of the farming activity in Greece at this time, because again, that is the base of any of our ancient economies. Farming. So they're farming mostly with grain, using barley and wheat, grapes, olives, green vegetables such as beans, some fruits, and also sheep and goats, uh, but not typically mostly for meat for most people, mostly for cheeses and milks. Uh, use of meat for country people, your average Greek person, was very rare by this time because all the land that could provide grazing for raising cattle or other types of meat, that's not the most efficient or effective use of that land. That land needed to be used for more efficient agricultural uses. You need to use that land for what's going to give you the most calories for your effort, what's going to give you the most calories for your time, what's going to give this average farmer the most calories for his his labor. So, not much uh, production, meat production. Work in ancient Greece for most Greeks is continuous. It kind of can be described as beginning in October. That's the beginning of the Greek rainy season, and that is the time to do the first plowing. It was back-breaking work. You have these tools, these plows that are very easily broken, and even if this independent small farmer had oxen or cattle to help, even if he had a few laborers that he paid to help him with the plowing, it is horrible work. Uh, just miserable. There's a poet in ancient Greece who said uh, that when the cranes, these birds, the cranes start calling at this time of year, that signal when you should start plowing, it pierces the heart of all of these farmers. They, they hate this time of year. 
So that starts in October and it's going to continue all year round until you get to midsummer. Autumn and winter are used to cut wood, uh, build wagons and tools. Late winter, the farmers need to start tending to the vines. Uh, they may harvest some of the grain. Uh, the month of July is time to store and build storages for the grain that's been harvested. When you get to the height of the summer, when it really is the most miserable time, dry, uh, that would be a time for rest. Uh, but by the time September, you know, the end of summer, by September hits, it's time to harvest the grapes. And then we have October. It's time to start over. So that's your general life of most Greeks. Notice I didn't talk about anything except farming or things relating to farming. Is Greeks do not did not actually do any of the things that we like to talk about in terms of poetry and theater and athletics with the Olympics or uh, soldiering. That's not what most Greeks are doing in their actual history. There was actually a poet who came from this class of Greeks. His name was Hesiod, and he claimed that he was also a small farmer, and his poetry, his writing, really shows that. He did not write anything about enter entertainment. He did not write about pleasure. Most of what he wrote about was basically the quiet, humble excitement and pride in the opportunities of rural life and the rewards of working hard and looking to the future for things to be better. So that's the life if you're an average, poor, small farming Greek. Aristocratic life is what we all read about. That's what makes the Greeks a, little bit, a bit more famous. Most uh, aristocrats, most of the nobility in ancient Greece and archaic Greece were wealthy enough to pay for laborers. Uh, sometimes up front with uh, goods or services or coin. Uh, sometimes, if they could get away with it, they would go with a sharecropping deal. Uh, a sharecropping deal would be where they would say, oh, we're not going to pay you anything right now. You just start working, and when we get ready to harvest this 100, 500 acres of crop, uh, I'll give you a cut of what we get at the market for it. So... Good, good for the aristocrat, good position. So they would hire sharecroppers, laborers, sometimes slaves, some number of slaves to work the land. So what does that leave for the aristocrats to do? What are they doing all day? Uh, they are having leisure. They are having the luxury of rest and recreation. So the center of an aristocrat's cultural life was literally drinking parties. And that's what they called as symposiums, a drinking party. That's the center of their life. The purpose for aristocrats of the drinking party was to, quite frankly, remove inhibitions and to produce oblivion, intoxicated oblivion. Their goal at these symposiums was to uh, simply drink as much as other guests, but not to become drunk or as drunk as they did. You can see that little note, that little kind of hint of competitiveness, the, of being excellent at anything you do. Whether you're that poor farmer trying to get your production up 
from other people with the same amount of land, or whether you're an aristocrat sitting at a party, you know, trying to drink as much and not get as drunk as another person. This competitive spirit is really a hallmark for Greek culture. I mentioned that in a couple episodes ago. So these symposiums, these drinking parties, were very carefully organized. A quote-unquote king was chosen to be in charge of setting the order of what the events were going to be for the night or the day. Only men are allowed to go. They would begin the symposium slash drinking party with prayers and libations to the gods. They would have games, one of which included flicking little drops of wine from your cup, trying to hit targets. And dancing, music, sometimes you'd have, uh, you'd have women company there for dancing, etc. They have songs, poetry, philosophical disputes even. Another aspect of aristocratic life was athletics. Uh, again, you can see the, the average farmer doesn't have time for playing sports. They don't have time for using their energy doing an athletic event that doesn't produce food, doesn't produce wealth. So athletics is a physical leisure of the noble class. Their most popular athletic events would be running, long jumping, the discus throw, the javelin, and the pentathlon, which includes boxing, wrestling, chariot racing, etc., most of these are reserved for the wealthy, especially chariot racing, because uh, middle, middle class or average class uh, Greeks would not be able to afford uh, horses that are used for that kind of purpose. All right, so you see life for your average Greek. You see life for the aristocratic Greek. Let's talk about religious beliefs in um, Greek society. Like most other ancient civilizations... Frankly, every other ancient civilization on, in world history, except for the Jewish people, except for perhaps a small period in Egyptian history with the pharaoh Akhenaten, who tried to bring this new idea of the sun god being the only or supreme god. But with those two exceptions, every other world culture is polytheistic. It's just perhaps more natural to just a, a human experience in this ancient time is to believe that there must be multiple gods controlling and taking care of uh, multiple things that are related to basically world, natural world events. So the Greeks are polytheistic and they have a Greek pantheon which refers to the 12 gods who live on Mount Olympus. And I want to quickly just take you through who were these gods and what were they about. Uh, the king of the gods was Zeus. He is considered the father of the gods. He represented kind of the connection uh, to humanity of, of justice. Hera, the goddess, was his, was his wife. And Zeus had a few siblings, the first of which would be Poseidon. He is the god of the sea and earthquakes. Hestia was his sister. She was the goddess of the hearth and home. And his other sister, Demeter, was the goddess of agriculture and marriage. Zeus finally also had some children. Uh, he had Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love and beauty. His son Apollo is the god of sun, the sun, music, poetry, and prophecy. Ares is the god of war. Artemis, the uh, representing the moon and hunting. You'd have Athena, who's a goddess of wisdom and the arts. You'd have 
his son Hephaestus, who was the god of fire and metallurgy. And finally, you have the god Hermes, who was considered the messenger for all the gods and also the patron of commerce and kind of cunning, the virtue of being cunning. Not necessarily wisdom, but um, kind of being sharp and getting out of a bind. So Hermes, the cunning messenger. So these are the polytheistic gods for the Greeks. What do they think about them, though? Uh, they believe that these gods, they behave like people. These are not good gods. Gods are not good for the Greeks. The Greeks don't expect the gods to be good. They are like people, almost an exaggeration of human nature, almost a caricature of human nature. They have strong emotions. They are flawed. They get jealous. They get angry. Sometimes they just do bad things because they don't care. But they are superhuman in these flaws. But the, uh, if we're talking about these gods, we have to also consider and bring in here, the gods are not on the top of kind of the supernatural power structure because the gods were subordinate to the fates. And the fates are really determining the events and the impacts on the people of Greece. Uh, what a Greek would think, who's controlling my life? Who's going to determines what the future is going to be and what's going to happen to me and my family? That's being decided by the fates. The gods will play a role in getting that fate decision uh, into reality, but it's the fates who are deciding what's going to happen. But for these gods, each polis, which again was a Greek city-state, each polis had one particular Olympian that was considered the guardian. It might be Apollo, it might be Athena, it might be Ares, but they all had one particular god that they worshipped in a special way with special festivals. But all the gods were across Greek culture, all the Greek city-states. There are hundreds, hundreds of Greek city-states. And these gods were recognized and honored by all of the Greeks in all of these different city-states. Between the 8th and 7th century BCE, there were common shrines were established for these. Another religious topic is the question of immortality and uh, mortality, and also questions of morality. The Greeks also worshipped lesser deities. They would worship human heroes, whether they were real or legendary. But Greek religion, in terms of worshipping, what does it mean for them to worship a god? It's not an emotional experience. It is not a personal relationship. It is not a, a everlasting purpose endeavor that these Greeks are doing. They just they offer prayers. It says, like, you are the gods. You are great. You are powerful. They offer sacrifices, offer libations, uh, and they basically just ask for protection and ask for favors. Again, all while knowing that the gods are not always good and the gods are not going to always say yes. And they may say no just because they don't like you, just because they're angry for some reason, or just because they want to not do what you want. They want to hurt you. So th this, this kind of expectation of these gods just acting like humans who can't necessarily be bought, but sometimes they can, that's okay. That's what the Greeks understand about religion or their religion. The average human in Greece, the average Greek, did not hope for immorta immortality. The Greeks, ancient Greeks did not expect anything to happen when they die. They're living for 
their life here on earth. They're, they don't have a heaven uh, per se. They don't believe in any, any real afterlife besides uh, an underworld, uh, vague nothingness. There is also very, very little moral teaching in the religion per se. It comes, I mean, we have religious, we have moral values expressed in Greek poetry. We have moral values expressed in Greek uh, literature and in Greek philosophy, the great tradition of Greek philosophy. But direct moral teaching from the gods and because the gods said so, that is, that's, not a, that's not a common resource for the Greeks to look to, to for moral questions. So the Greek moral values here, uh, even though not necessarily coming mostly from their religion, the Greeks' moral values were pretty straightforward. They said you should pay your debts, whether it's a social debt or a financial debt. You should worship the gods in the usual traditional way. You should show up to defend the polis. You should show up to perform your public services, public duties, uh, serving on a jury, going to the meetings, going to, ta- going to city-state gatherings. Private moral questions was really simply to be good to your friends and your people close to you and do harm to your enemies. That was not considered a bad moral outlook. That was their outlook. It, it's not immoral to do harm to your enemies. It was considered natural that Greek humans, humans have enemies and humans have close friends. And so you should do good for your friends, and you should try to undermine and conquer your enemies or people who are against you. So it's a very, very different moral structure, as you can see what we have later in um, other, other early European cultures and in early Christian European culture. Other particular things we should mention before we move on from religion would be a, couple, a few cult, a religious cults. There was a cult of Apollo that started around the 6th century BCE. You had the oracle became very influential, the oracle of Apollo. This kind of served the Greek desire to have clues to the future. They want to know what's going on in the future. And because we see, again, this Greek religion doesn't have a lot of answers and doesn't have a lot of guidance or advice for what you should do, the cult of Apollo kind of fills that vacuum. And so they get these clues to the future from this oracle, and the values that come out from this oracle cult is that you should be, you should do everything in moderation. You should. There's these two famous quotes that come from this oracle cult. The first one is, "Know thyself, get to know yourself." And the second is, "Don't do anything in excess." Nothing in excess. So. What we see there is mo- the value of moderation. The virtue of moderation becomes a key moral uh, goal for Greek people. Another cult, we'll mention very quickly, we've got two more. The cult of Dionysus. Uh, this kind of goes more to people's fears of what's going to happen when we die, what happens if we die tomorrow, and kind of comforts that. And it's the god of... Uh, Dionysus is the uh, god... Uh, of nature and fertility, also of inhibition, drink, excess. So we kind of see the opposite of moderation here. And there's one other uh, cult, it's called the Orphic cult, which is kind of the opposite of the Dionysian cult. And they were said to not kill animals. They believed that there was this kind of survival of a soul after death. 
and that there could be some form of living after the body dies. And so with the cult of uh, the Orphic cult of Orpheus, we see this. Okay? So that is religion in Greece. We talked about social life in Greece, the economic lives, the athletic lives of Greece. Let's talk about poetry here. In the 6th century BCE, you see the increase in popularity of lyric poetry. That's, that refers to poetry that is really meant to be sung in verses, that would be sung by either uh, one person or one person joined with verses for a choir or a chorus. They were very popular in writing verses that were very personal about emotions and personal relationships. It's kind of a, a me generation of lyric poetry. They talked about pleasure, the agony of love. Uh, one, one poet wrote about you know, bitterness over losing family status. There's one particular uh, poet who, who was called Theo, uh, Theognis of Megara, and his life, he comes from the old original aristocratic family, but he lived through the tyranny, tyranny that kind of swept away these old traditions. He lived through a very turbulent, unstable democracy, and then he lived through a new version of oligarchy that did not necessarily include the old aristocratic order. And so his poetry, he wrote basically in defense, he was kind of a reactionary, basically. He's an old guard. He's kind of a, a, I don't know how to say it, but he wrote in defense of the original aristocratic social model. He, he believed and wrote that every noble person was moral. Everyone was either noble or base or evil. Everyone was good or bad. And he said the nobles are good and that everyone else is just naturally bad. They're base. And he wrote against interclass mingling. He didn't think that nobles should socialize or marry or talk to even people who were not nobles. He said, if you do that, you're going to become corrupted and you'll lose your virtue. And for the people who are on the bottom, for the average Greeks, he said that, that virtue and intellect was innate. He said, you, you guys can never become virtuous people. You can't become moral people. That's just for us at the top, the nobles. This view of society, this view of, this is basically elitism. He, he, his poetry was a a proposition of elite control, elite leadership of society. And while you may not have heard of this guy from Megara, this poet, he his work goes on to influence later very influential Greek achievements in philosophy, including from Plato. And you'll see this if you're familiar with Plato's writings, Plato's advocacy for a republic led by philosopher kings. So, uh, Plato was something of an elitist also. Uh, not necessarily in the common ver parlance of that, but an elitist in the sense that he believes that you know, the best people should be ruling society. Okay, so I want to go ahead and stop here. We'll do the Persian Wars in the next episode. If you have any questions, comments, or corrections, I'm sure I've got some corrections you might have for me, you can always email us at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. And if you are enjoying this series, please like us on the podcast. It's the European History Podcast.
And you can like us on Facebook even. I try to post uh, some artwork, some musical things, some study guides uh, from different resources that you might go to if you want more information about anything I talked about. You can like us on Facebook. It's also the same title. The European History Podcast has a page on Facebook. So next time we're going to talk about the Persian Wars and we're going to wrap up the history of ancient Greece and we'll be set up to begin the history of classical and Hellenistic Greece. This is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel.